The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Many times in my life, I have said or heard the words, it's not the end of the world. Sometimes people who really aren't being very compassionate when somebody else is pouring out their heart and some issues going on, some afflictions going on in their life will say rather callously in a shallow sort of way, it's not the end of the world. Well, as we come to Revelation 16, we're coming to a prediction, a prophecy of the end of the world. This is what it's going to look like. And it's a weighty thing. It's hard to picture it in our minds. It's hard to see it in the world around us as we see the blue sky, as we feel the cold temperatures this morning, as we see the cycle of seasons, as we think in our minds what it's like to walk along the seashore as we look at the ocean. Realize someday the ocean is effectively going to be murdered by human sin. As we look at the mountains and the islands and and say to ourselves, these are not permanent. Someday they're going to flee away. This world is temporary. To actually realize that, to let it settle in on your heart, to actually let it affect the way you see your life, the way you see your education if you're a student, the way you see your job if you're an employee, the way you see your marriage if you're married, the way that you see your parenting if you are a parent. The way you see every moment of your life is that you are an alien and a stranger in a world that is going to go away. It's going to be destroyed by the wrath of God because of human sin. That's the impact of Revelation 16 that you heard just read by Topher. And the end of the world will be worse than we can imagine. It's hard to even imagine as we read these words, which are prophecies, as we understand the weightiness of... It's hard to even imagine, but it's going to be worse than we can imagine. It's worse than any... Any film producer can make. I could walk through all of the disaster films that have end of the world scenarios. This is worse than all of them. And we need to take it in as, as a prediction, as a, as a prophecy of the future, of what is going to come. And here as we come to Revelation 16, and just let me explain where we're heading. Revelation 17 and 18, and the first little part of Revelation 19. Revelation 17 and 18 just goes into, in detail, about Babylon the Great. What is Babylon? What, is, what does that mean? And so it's a parenthesis, and we're going to get to that, God willing, over the next few weeks, to describe the world we live in. Babylon the Great, as a whore, riding on a beast, and then as a big city with commerce and, and things bought and sold, all of that, Revelation 17, 18. And then there's hallelujah, 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 Revelation 19, and then you have the second coming of Christ. So this is the last thing that happens on planet Earth right before the second coming of Christ. That's what we're looking at today. And so therefore, here in this account, in this chapter, we come to the end of God's patience with sinners. This is the end of his patient waiting. And his patience is immeasurable. It's matchless, but it's not endless. God is not endlessly patient. There is a day coming in which God will judge the earth. For its sins. I mean if you see it in verse 14. It's, it's right there. 
it says that they are going to go out and gather the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle. Listen, on the great day of God Almighty. That's what it says in Revelation 16, 14. The great day of God Almighty. Or other scriptures call it the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. So why is God patient with us? We must not misunderstand his patience. It's not because he doesn't care about sin. It's not because he's not holy. It's not because he's impotent. That there's nothing he can do about it. He can do much. Why is he patient? Well, 2 Peter 3 says it very plainly. That God is waiting for sinners to repent. That's the purpose of the patience of God. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness. He is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish. But everyone to come to repentance. And then a few verses later, 2 Peter 3.15 says, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. So he is waiting for people, for sinners to repent and be saved. The Apostle Paul said in Romans uh, chapter 2 that God's goodness, kindness, and patience, his tolerance is meant to lead you to repentance. The Apostle Paul, God was patient with him. Incredibly patient as he was punishing the church, as he was hardening his own heart, as he was dragging off Christian brothers and sisters of ours, dragging them off and throwing them in prison, men and women, breaking up homes, seeing too that people were executed for faith in Christ. God was patient with him. And he says in 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, Paul writes about himself, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Note, I, not I was the worst. Of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I, Paul says, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. God is a very patient God. Romans 9, Paul writes of the astonishing level of patience God shows to vessels of wrath who will never repent. In the end, they will never repent. And he says in Romans 9, 22, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? But what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to us, the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? I mean, God is patient with objects of vessels of wrath to teach us how gracious he was to us in Christ. And so God is an amazingly patient God. And the scripture reveals this again and again. In Genesis 6, in the days when the ark was being built in the days of Noah, God waited patiently, waited patiently for sinners to repent, even though every thought and inclination of the hearts of humans at that time were only evil all the time. God still waited patiently when the ark was being built. He waited 400 years for the sin of the Amorites in the promised land to reach its full measure. During that same 400 years, he waited for the Egyptians to stop enslaving and beating his chosen people. He's a patient God. And then after the Jews came in and took the promised land, 
They started following the ways of the nations around them, the ways of the Canaanites. And God waited patiently for the Jews to repent. He sent them prophets again and again and again, calling them to repent and turn away from their Canaanitish ways. The very, very patient God. And every day of human history, God is showing patience towards sinners. Every single day is a display of his unlimited patience. Because human history is filled with a river of sin we can't even calculate. We, all of us, underestimate it. It's a wicked world that we live in. And that wickedness is pouring out from human hearts. Paul describes it plainly at the end of Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 32. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Romans chapter 1, 29 through 32. That's the world we live in. So we should not, as we come to Revelation 16, have no idea why God would do this to the planet. Like we have no idea why God would pour his wrath out on planet earth. I don't know why God would do this. The angels don't think that. They know exactly why God's doing that. And we'll talk about that today. But God's matchless patience is going to come to an end. There is a day of the Lord coming. The great day of God Almighty. Revelation 16, 14. It is coming. And it says in 2 Peter 3, 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's right in the text. Behold, I am coming like a thief. No further announcements. He's just going to come. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. All right, so we come to Revelation 16. It's been a number of weeks since we've looked. Let's look back and get some context. So we're not just jumping right in uh, to Revelation 16. The book of Revelation, at both in chapter 1, verse 1, and then at the end in Revelation 22, was given in part to tell us the future. To tell his servants the things that must soon take place. So it's a book written about the future. It's a revelation of the future. It's also a revelation of Almighty God seated on his throne. He is seated on his throne. Almighty God is seated on the throne of the universe. Revelation 4. Everything circles around him. Almighty God on the throne. In Revelation 5, we have a revelation of Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. A lamb looking as if it had been slain. And he takes from the right hand of Almighty God, the one seated on the throne, a scroll sealed with seven seals. And in Revelation 6, he breaks open those seals. And some have said that that uh, scroll is the title deed for the planet Earth. The right to own it. But there's a process that has to be followed. And as he breaks open the seals in Revelation 6... Uh, judgments start coming from heaven to earth, initiates the, the final process of the, the wrath of God poured out on the earth. Revelation 7 gives the point of everything, the point of, of redemptive history, a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe and language and people and nation standing before the throne and they're wearing white robes and they're having palm branches in their hands and they're saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The save, the redeem, that's the point of all of this. The glory of God and the salvation of a great multitude. But then in Revelation 8 and 9, 
we have, I think, in that final seven-year period, the beginning of overt punishments and wrath that's poured out on the earth with the seven trumpets. Things we've never seen. It's never happened. There's no way you can say it's, it's an analogy or a metaphor for something that we've seen in church history. Never seen anything like it, the seven trumpets. Revelation 8 and 9 describes them. A third of the trees burned up. A third of all green growing things burned up. And all of the green grass burned up. And a third, this, uh, uh, the sea turned to blood so that a third of the living creatures in the sea died. And then a third of the fresh water turned into poison. And then the celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, and stars struck in some way so that there is a third reduction of their light, perhaps, would be a way to interpret that. And then a demonic assault as demons come billowing up from, from some, like some, out of some furnace. And people are afflicted with, uh, with the, like the sting of a scorpion, a demonic assault on them. And then a demonic army coming and killing a third of the population of the earth. Now, obviously, as you look through Revelation 8 and 9, you see the seven trumpets. And then you read over the seven bowls. It might be tempting to think we're just going back over the same ground, but it's not so. There's some very significant differences between the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. First, the seven trumpets have a limited effect on planet earth. The third language, a third, a third, a third. That leaves two-thirds untouched. So God was holding himself back at that point, restraining. And he actually even is with the seven bulls. Holding himself back, restraining. Secondly, the seven trumpets do not in the same way directly assault human bodies. And put an end really to human life in the sa- at the same scale or scope. Seems to be that the seven trumpets give a, a final opportunity for repentance. That you can imagine... After the seven trumpets, there is time for repentance and people repent. But here it's just so very clear that no one repents based on these, these seven bowls. Now, I'm not saying that it's impossible. It just says they do not repent. It says it again and again. So it's emphasized. Also, there, there are details like the, the fourth bowl, which uh, intensifies the sun's power, has no parallel in the... Um, Seven trumpets, there's no parallel to anything we know in human history. Also the fifth uh, bowl, which plunges the world into darkness, has no parallel in the uh, seven trumpets. So this is different, friends. Seven trumpets come first, and there's some time, and then finally come the seven bowls, the last plagues. That's it. And that's another way you know it's not the same thing, because it says these are the last, because with them God's judgment is finished on the earth. Why does God finally end this day of salvation? The time has come. The last elect person has come to faith in Christ. The rest of the world is just hardened, hardened, hardened in their sin. There's no repentance. The the wickedness has reached such a level it is time to end human history. We saw that earlier in Revelation 9, 20 and 21. It says the rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood. Idols they cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now, Revelation 13 describes the beast, the Antichrist, and so it's in that, the context that we've got to understand it, because it's mentioned in Re- Revelation 16. The beast is a world ruler that comes directly influenced by Satan himself, and he is given power over the entire world to rule it as a governmental ruler, 
He also becomes a religious figure. He is worshipped as a god. So he becomes the final government and the final religion, the beast. And the power of the government is overwhelming. The mark of the beast is required in order to buy or sell anything. And so everyone that, that, that is not a believer in Christ, that's sustained and protected by the grace of God, the sovereign grace of God, bows down to this man, receives the mark of the beast, worships him as God, goes along to get along. They're involved in that system. That's what's going on. Along with that, at that time, there's incredibly courageous witnessing going on. Bold witnessing happening in this final phase of human history. Beginning in Revelation 11 with the two witnesses who are, have supernatural power and boldness and courage to stand before this wicked ruler of all the earth, this, this antichrist, and clearly proclaim the gospel until he finally rises up and kills them. God raises them up three days later and they ascend to heaven. But there's bold witnessing. And Revelation 12 also speaks of the servants of God who did, did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And they overcame Satan by the word of the Lamb and by, the, by the, their blood and by the word of the Lamb and by, his, uh, by their testimony to Jesus. So they're boldly proclaiming the testimony of Jesus and they overcome. They're bold, courageous witnesses. Revelation 14 reveals a group of, it seems, men who did not defile themselves with women, the text says. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And no lie is in their mouths. And they just boldly give themselves fully. They, they, they metaphorically make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom. And they, they just go wherever they need to go to witness. And then you've got this, this, uh, this, um, this eagle flying in midair, proclaiming the gospel... Fear God who created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Fear God and give Him the glory. An angel is given the eternal glory, uh, gospel to, uh, to preach to the nations. They are having witnessing. And we shouldn't imagine that it would have no effect, that, that, that there are no converts during that final phase of human history. It's going on. But God is going to wait no longer. The last elect person chosen by name before creation of the world has been brought to faith in Christ. The rest are hardened. The time has come for judgment. That's where we're at. So it all begins in verse 1 with a command from God. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. These seven angels are identified in Revelation 15, 5 through 7. They come out of heaven. They're given by the li uh, living creature these seven bowls of the most toxic spiritual substance there's ever been. The wrath of God that's going to be poured out on the earth. Now we should not take this whole thing as... Uh, literary technique or a device of some sort, symbolic you know, language. So many even evangelical commentators do that. It is not a safe way to approach the book of Revelation. I mean, they'll link it back to the, the plagues that you see in the Ten Commandments. One evangelical commentator zeroes in on the plague on the, on the ocean and says, you know, because so much human commerce goes, ships and all that, this is really a judgment on the economy of the world. Look, we're going to get to that in Revelation 18. Trust me, God's going to judge the economy of the world. But that's not what's going on here. I would say ecology of the world, not economy. This is going to happen. From the Garden of Eden, God has linked the planet we walk on and the sin of man, the sin of Adam. 
Adam's curse was a curse on the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. I mean, just meditate on that. What God said to Adam, our father, cursed is the ground because of you. Because of your sin, the ground is cursed. There's a link. And so it's going to produce thorns and thistles for you. And that's just unfolded since then. Psalm 8, 6 through 8 says that you made man ruler over the works of your hands. You, pay, you put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea. All that swim in the paths of the seas you put under man. So they get judged because of human sin. This makes perfect sense. God's very consistent about this. It says in Romans chapter 8 that the whole creation's groaning as in the pains of childbirth, groaning, waiting for the children of God to be fully revealed in our resurrection glory. And then the world will be resurrected too, like us. But now it's groaning, and so there's this definite link. So this actually makes sense. This chapter makes sense theologically. All right, so verse 2 begins describing the actual seven bowls. Verse 2, the first angel went and poured out his bowl onto the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped uh, his image. The angel does not hesitate, just pours that, the, this poisonous bowl down on, on the earth, on the land, and it results in a direct assault on human bodies, loathsome and malignant sores, one translation will give. You can imagine bleeding, running sores on bodies, like Job had when he was scraping his skin with pottery. The Greek word is tied to the English word for ulcer, like an ulcerating sores, just disgusting thing, right on the skin, on the bodies of humans. Incredible suffering. And who is it that's, uh, that's judged? Well, everyone that received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. So the saints, the believers, are excluded. They're, they're not experiencing the sores. Second Peter chapter 2 makes it plain that the Lord knows how to rescue godly people and to judge ungodly people. He knows how to make a distinction. He knew how to rescue uh, uh, Lot. He knew how to rescue Noah when he was building the ark. He could rescue Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's able to make a distinction and judge the wicked. He knows how to do that. The second bowl, verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. So the sea is turned into blood, like thick, dark, coagulated blood, like the blood of of, of a man that was gunned down bleeding out on the floor. And it's this sticky, dark, thick, red, oozing substance. Some commentators link it to red tide, but that's trivializing it. This is far worse than any red tide we've ever seen. In that, every single living creature in the sea dies. That's absolutely mind-boggling. It's hard to even imagine. I, I I don't know of any human being has any idea how many living creatures there are in the sea. We have no idea. Billions? Trillions? I, I just have no idea. You're talking about krill and plankton, and, and it's every living thing. So even like the great coral reef, the barrier reef, that is said to be the, the largest single living entity, if it is indeed a single, it's dead. All of those beautiful tropical fish that swim in schools through the, the clear water of the of the the Caribbean, dead, all of them dead. You can think of all the stingrays. You can think of all the sharks, the great white sharks, just dying, orcas. It's just in, in, incalculable death. 
biologists estimate, listen to this, this is one of those ridiculous facts you get as a preacher. 50 to 80% of all living creatures living in the sea. All right, wait a minute. Now, I was a mechanical. 50 to 80%? That's a wide range. Come on. A little more precision. They can't give it to us. How could they? We don't know what's in the depths of the sea. We don't know everything that's in there. Just a lot of living things live in the sea, and they're all going to die because of human sin. Let me intensify. Because of our sin, they're going to die. They didn't die in the flood. They actually, you could say that they prospered in the flood. Did better. I don't know. But they didn't die. But at that point, they're going to die. They're in here, in this chapter, they're the first to die. And, and after the sea dies, we die. You understand this must be the end of human history. There's no way we can survive if the ocean's dead. No way. From the sea, we get 70% of our oxygen. From the sea, we get 83% of our rainwater. How long will we survive, billions of us, how long will we survive without that level of oxygen and rainwater? We cannot survive long. And given the fact that God is about to pollute all the fresh water, we will have no water to drink. Nothing. No rain. Nothing. It, the end must come quickly. And it will. The third bowl. Verse 4. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. This is a, an expansion of the third trumpet judgment, which polluted only a third of the fresh water and turned it into Wormwood, this is everything. All the rivers and springs of fresh water in the world are turned to blood. John MacArthur in his commentary said this, The destruction of what is left of earth's fresh water will cause unthinkable hardship and suffering. There will be no water to drink. There will be no clean water to wash the oozing, ulcerating sores caused by the first bowl judgment. No water to bring cooling relief from the scorching heat that we're just about to talk about in a moment. The scene will be so unimaginably horrible that people will wonder how a God of compassion and mercy and grace could send such a terrifying judgment. So an angel comes in verse 5 and 6 and speaks in God's defense. Look at it in verse 5 and 6. Then I heard an angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For... They have shed the blood of your saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. So, these devastating judgments are displays of God's perfect wisdom, justice, and righteousness. Beyond that, we must see how angels think. You know how Jesus causes us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The same kind of way. All right, well, how is God's will done in heaven? These angels are are a display of how quickly, how, how immediately and with great zeal the angels carry out the will of the king. There's no hesitation here. There's no squeamishness. Just vindication of God. He doesn't shrink back or question at all. He actually even celebrates what God is doing here. You are just in these judgments. You who are and who were the Holy One. And look at the logic. Why is he just? Two reasons. First, because he did it. And secondly, because it makes sense. It lines up. Both of those are important for vindicating God. It's the, called theodicy, the justification of God. First of all, everything God does is right because he does it. He is the standard 
of justice and righteousness. If your measuring stick is off from the one meter, a little, if you have the problem. Not the Bureau of Standards and Measurements. They don't have the problem, you do. Your measuring stick is off. Friends, our measuring stick is off. We are messed up. We are unjust. How could we judge God who is perfectly just? So he is just in doing this because he did it. There is no standard of righteousness or holiness above God that he has to obey. Remember when Abraham was interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah and he said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? (laughs) The real thing is the judge of all the earth is right and everything he does is right. But secondly, God has created angels and humans alike with minds and hearts to be able to evaluate God's actions and our own. And to be able to see a rightness in what's happening here. It just lines up here. You are just because they have shed the blood of your, of your saints and prophets. And you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. This is appropriate for these bloodthirsty killers. Jesus said, all the blood of the righteous that's been shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and there, all of this, the ground is going to disclose the righteous blood that was shed on it and justice will come. And so it just makes sense for these bloodthirsty killers to be given blood to drink. It's what they deserve. You see the logic? It just lines up. So, you know, we see this in the book of Proverbs. If, if someone digs a hole, they're going to fall in it. Someone moves a stone, it's going to roll back on them. There's just, a, there's just a rightness to this. Or when like Haman was made to hang on the, own, the gallows he made for Mordecai. It just makes sense. And so the altar then responds, Yes, Lord, God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The altar is the place where the saints, the martyrs, when the fifth seal was broken, they are under the altar and they're crying out, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And they're told then to wait a little longer until the full number of martyrs comes in. Well, that, that's done now. The full number of martyrs has come in, and it's time for, for judgment. And so the altar responds, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your ways. The fourth bowl, people are scorched by the heat of the sun. Look at verses 8 and 9. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat. And they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. So this, this, the bowl is poured on the sun. The sun is in the hand of God. And he can do whatever he wants with it. It's incredible. The sun has served planet earth since the fourth day of creation. It's given us light, heat, everything that we need for living, all life derives itself ultimately from the sun because of photosynthesis. Every living thing depends on sunlight. And every second, the sun puts off the same amount of energy that our human race at current energy uh, consumption would use in 500 million years. One second, that's how much energy the sun puts off. The surface of the sun, the outer corona, the outer edge of the sun is 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. The core, they estimate, they estimate... 27 million degrees. How can they know? NASA is sending a probe to the core of the sun, and they're going to get back a radio signal uh, to find out, you know, just how hot the sun really is. How can they know? 
but that's what they say, 27 million degrees. It is 93 million miles from the earth. And it's positioned exactly where it needs to be to sustain our fragile life and our fragile ecosystem. Now here I'm going to get geeky with you. If I did a scale model of the relationship between the earth and the sun and put it here in the sanctuary. We went out to Pluto, if it's still part of the solar system. Uh, it would go, you know, way, way back that way. But let's say we could fit the relationship between the sun and the earth in this sanctuary. And the earth were here and the sun's at the back, 93 million miles away. The North Pole this week was at negative 24 degrees Fahrenheit. So you think you were cold. It was colder there. Quito, Ecuador was at 66 degrees Fahrenheit. 90 degree difference. Yeah, but what's the difference overall percentage-wise from the North Pole to the edge of the equator? All right, at that scale, it's the thickness of a dime. So you step forward the thickness of a dime from here to here, okay, it's 90 degrees warmer. Do you see the precision with which God has set up our world? And no, he's not going to ramp it way up. We would instantly die. The surface of Venus, 864 degrees Fahrenheit. That's a third of the way closer to the sun. So he's not going to immediately kill everybody. He's just going to click it up a tick and people will be seared, sunburned. It will be horrible in that there's no drinking water, nothing. A judgment of heat. And that will be genuinely, dear friends, global warming. Don't get me started on that topic, but that will be, no doubt about it, global warming. And what will that mean? Well, it will mean, obviously, a melting of the ice caps and a rise of what? The oceans. Yes, but what are the oceans like? What's going on in the oceans? What has happened? It's just a sea of death. And that's going to flood the coastal cities. It's going to bring disease and suffering as you can hardly imagine. Verse 9, it says, the people were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth bowl, verse 10 and 11, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and the kingdom, his kingdom was plunged into darkness. And men gnawed their tongues in agony and they cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. So he plunges this world into darkness. We know light and darkness are metaphors for, for good and evil, but we also know that God declared light good. And when he takes light away, that's a tremendous judgment on us. It lines up with our dark hearts, spiritually dark hearts. It says in John 3, 19, the light has come into the world in Jesus, but people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And so it makes sense for this dark kingdom, antichrist kingdom, to be plunged into darkness. It focuses on the throne. The, the bowl is poured out on the throne, and the kingdom is plunged into darkness. And the people are powerless to stop it. There's nothing they can do. It does remind us of the ten plagues in Egypt, and the ninth plague, right before the final one, the plague on the firstborn, is a plague of darkness. And this is what it said. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. And Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. A darkness that can be felt. Think about that. And no one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. 
I think it, this, you know, it says in, in, in Exodus 10.23, yet the, all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. So God makes a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. And he also limits it. It doesn't go on forever because there's nothing that can happen. No unfolding history happens in total darkness. So the kings of the earth that are coming for the battle of Armageddon in just a minute, they've got to have light to see. So it's not, it's not going to be for a long time. But there's darkness. And it's going to be like hell. Hell on earth. Because it says in Matthew 8, 12 that the wicked will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here is the world in total darkness. People seared with the heat of the sun. And they're crying out in anger and rage. Not repenting of their sins. And in total darkness. Now the sixth bowl is the way open for the final battle. And I have a lot more to say about this than I can say today. But we'll just begin to introduce this. And we'll see more in chapter 17 and much more in chapter 19. The sixth angel, verse 12 through 16. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the earth. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs. And they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So this is preparatory. The the Euphrates River is the northern boundary of the promised land. The invasions that came, like in Jeremiah 1, that tipped down like a boiling pot from the north, came down, they crossed the Euphrates. They're coming down. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the, the Persians, the Greeks, that's how they come pouring down. And so this is a, a, a barrier, a boundary. We can imagine with the global warming that without this help, the kings of the earth can't come to Armageddon. So I want you to picture... The day, the night, the night of the Red Sea crossing. Remember how the Egyptian army, the most powerful on earth, was there to wipe out the Jews. And they come pouring down and they're stopped from slaughtering the Jews by a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud, remember? Who came and stood between the the Israelites and the Egyptians. And they couldn't go. And the the Israelites are crying out to God. They, They have no way out. And then God opens a way through the Red Sea. You remember the story. And when the time comes for them to go, the pillar moves around and leads them through. What does Pharaoh and his army do at that point? All right, it's on, boys. Let's go. Bad idea. It's like, sure, go ahead into the Red Sea. And they start going into the Red Sea, and the wheels of the chariot start getting mucked up, and they're not moving. And then they say, oh, wait a minute. The God of the Jews is fighting for them. This is after the ten plagues. Same thing's going to happen right before the second coming of Christ, only much bigger. The kings of the earth under Antichrist are going to gather together to wipe the believing Jews now from the face of the earth. And they're going to come to this place called Armageddon, and they're going to be gathered. Be gathered, pass a voice, be gathered for the day of battle. And what are they there for? They're there to die. It's not going to be much of a fight. We'll talk about it in Revelation 19. But they're going to be gathered. And so these these demonic, frog-like spirits go out performing signs and wonders to get them to come. 
And they're all coming, and the Antichrist, and they're all going to be there. Read about it in Joel chapter 3. They're all going to be gathered to the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of the Lord judges. And he's going to judge the nations on every side. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. They're going to be gathered there, and the wrath of God will be poured out on them then. We'll get to that more later. But then he gives us, for us as Christians, a warning. He says, behold, I come like a thief. There's no further warnings. It's just going to, I'm going to come. And blessed are those who stay awake. We're not like those who sleep. We're believers. We know this is coming. You've been told. You've been forewarned. This is going to come. So stay awake. Be alert. Be aware of what time is about. What life is about. And keep your garments around you. So that you're not shamefully naked when Jesus returns. That's all about personal holiness. That's about your faith in Christ. And like the the five wise virgins that have the oil for their lamps and keep them burning. And you're ready for when the Lord comes. You're aware of what time is about. You're aware of how much God hates sin. It is because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. Such as sexual immorality and lying and covetousness. And all manner of wickedness described very plainly in the Bible. And you know what it is. Do not violate your conscience. Stay awake. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, this day is no secret to us. We know it's coming. We're not like those who sleep. We're those who are awake. We know what's coming. You've been been told from this book what's coming. So stay awake and be holy. Chapter ends in verses 17 through 21 with the seventh bowl. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is finished. There's such a power to that. It is finished. That's like Jesus' cry from the cross. This is it. This is the finish of God's wrath on the earth. It is done. It is finished. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was that earthquake. And the great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. All the cities of the nations fell apart. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. And from the sky, huge hailstones of about 100 pounds each fell upon men. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because it was so terrible. So all of this is just setting the stage for the second coming of Christ. We'll read about it in Revelation 19. It's just they're all gathered and they're there. But not everyone's going to be there. So around the world, there's going to be judgments. And this earthquake is a judgment in all the great cities of the world. And they're going to fall and come apart. There's never been an earthquake like this, a worldwide earthquake. And there's this terrifying divine storm, flashes of lightning, sounds, peals of thunder. Now, this morning as I was driving in and I was talking to my kids about these, I said, notice where the bowls are poured. What are they poured onto? They're poured onto the land and the sea and the rivers and springs and on the sun and on the throne of the beast and on the river Euphrates and into the air. Do you not see all the realms covered there? Everything's touched. Every realm is addressed by these seven bulls. God is judging the universe. The end has come. And this bull results in a massive earthquake. Every city on earth, especially the great city, Babylon the Great, we'll talk about that over the next couple of weeks, will experience uh, this earthquake. I have personal experience with an earthquake on January 17th, 1995 with my family, my two older kids. 
ground shook beneath it. It's terrifying. There's nowhere you can go. So this is greater than any earthquake there's ever been. No earthquake. Look at verse 18. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. And then verse 20. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. And then the final action here. Massive hailstones. Verse 21. From the sky, huge hailstones were about 100 pounds each fell upon men. Small, like, size of marble. That'll do massive damage. Like a bullet. Could kill you if it hits you in the head. But these are 100 pounds each. They're killing people. All right, now, the worst part of these plagues physically is that they're cumulative. The worst part of these plagues spiritually is they do not produce repentance. He says it again and again. Do you not see it? The fear of the Lord is a servant to us as sinners to bring us to Christ. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1.7. John Newton said, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." These people, they don't fear. They're just angry at God. Look at verse uh, 9. They cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Verse 11, they cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. This is a foretaste of hell. When they've been there 10,000 years in total darkness, they are no closer to repenting and giving God glory than the first day they were there. If anything, you could imagine a development of bitterness in their hearts. They do not justify God. They're not saying, I deserve to be here. Verse 21. They cursed God on account of the plague of hail because it was so terrible. Do you not realize, O oh saints, O oh brothers and sisters in Christ, that God has granted you repentance? He's given it to you as a gift. If you're sitting there right now in the pew as you're listening to me and you know that you're a sinner and you've cried out to Jesus to forgive you of your sins and you've received the gift of forgiveness and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in your heart, testifying that you're a child of God, a son or a daughter of God. You have been given an immeasurable gift. He opened his hand through the Spirit and gave you the gift. He granted to you repentance unto life. None of these things will do that for these vessels of wrath. Behold, therefore, in conclusion, the goodness and severity of God. Goodness to you. Patience to you. And severity to those who will not repent. As I say frequently, in a few moments we're going to be out. We're going to go out. You're going to look and the world will look like it always has. You have to believe that these things are going to come. You have to believe it by faith or it'll just be nothing to you. Just go into your life. You won't think anything of it. So I'm calling on you. If you know that you're not a Christian, don't wait. How, how much longer are you going to wait? Today is the day of salvation. Repent of your sins. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ. You don't need to come forward. We're not going to do that. We don't have an invitation. You don't need to move physically. In your pew, where you're sitting, while you're hearing. Faith comes by hearing. Trust in Jesus. Turn from your sins and trust in him. See the wisdom of God in moderately, even at the very end, tweaking the judgment on the earth. Instead of giving us 946 degrees Fahrenheit, he just increases the sun just a little bit. God is so wise. 
even in cursing the earth. He's very wise and meticulous and precise. And see his holiness and how much he hates sin. Look at your heart. How have you violated your conscience over the last week? How do you yearn to stop violating your conscience over this upcoming year? What do you want to do? How do you want to put sin to death by the Spirit? Be holy. And for us as believers, let's warn lost people that these days are coming. They don't think they're coming. You may well have an opportunity tomorrow at work. So what did you do yesterday? <laughs> you don't want to know. No, you do want to know. We talked about Revelation 16 at church. Let me tell you what's coming. Let me tell you what's coming. But here's the thing. I'm going to close with this. I was talking to my kids, and it's like, man, this is a hard story. It's like, man, it's a bad story. It's like, no, it's a good story. Because there's so much glory that comes after all this suffering. This is a great, great story. Here's the thing. Imagine if Jesus had died in the middle of the night and risen by morning. And he told his disciples, I'm alive. And they're like, huh. Well, I died last night and I came alive. No, no, no. But he was crucified for our sins. And they saw him. And great was their joy when he came alive. The suffering makes the joy infinitely greater. We're coming to a new world that's going to be perfect. We'll remember all this. And we will hate sin like God does. And we'll delight in the new heaven and new earth that he will make. Close with me in prayer. Lord, thank you for the things that we've learned in Revelation 16. It's an intense, long, and difficult chapter. I thank you for giving us patience to sit under it and learn from it. And now, Lord, give us grace to live according to it. Help us to be holy, to put sin to death, to have garments of holiness, imputed righteousness from Christ around us. Help us to love one another. Help us to share the gospel and be bold. And to warn people, sinners, of the end that is most certainly coming and coming soon. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.